Well, good morning again, church. My name is Brad Cheney. If we haven't met before, uh, as Joe said, delighted that we get to worship our Lord together. I was at a uh, pastors and elders meeting several weeks ago. It was a regional meeting of the churches in Alaska, Washington, Idaho, and Oregon. In Presbyterianism, we call that meeting Presbytery. As I walked through the doors of Faith Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, in the entryway just to my immediate right, there were 30 or so of these, these books stacked one on top of the other with a free sign that read, or a sign that read free, take a copy. You can't turn down a free book, of course, if you, especially if you're a pastor. I looked at the cover of it, and it turns out it's written by one of the pastors in our presbytery, Jason Dorsey, at Redeemer Church in Redmond, Washington. It's a self-published book, and Jason was giving out copies to all of us. The title of it is The Name, an, Expl- an Exploration of Christian Identity and the Calling that Arises from It. Uh, it's really well done. I would highly recommend it. You can, after the service, come on up and flip through it. Um, there's a lot of literature out there on the topic of Christian identity. But this one, uh, this is, a, is one of the best that I've ever read. And when you stop to think of it, have you ever noticed how many of our culture stories focus on the search for identity? We have fairy tales like Beauty and the Beast... The Frog Prince, Cinderella. These are all stories of a new identity granted or a true identity that's recovered. It's not just fairy tales. Ralph Ellison, the author of the classic novel Invisible Man, was once asked, would you say that the search for identity is primarily an American theme? And he answered, it is the American theme. Think about American literature. What is Huck Finn doing on the river all of that time but trying to discover who he is? Or or Jay Gatsby on his dock. Luke Skywalker, he doesn't know who he really is. And Princess Elsa is terrified that people will discover who she really is. And everybody wants to have an identity. Everybody wants to be somebody So Jay Gatsby will tell us that, quote, I didn't want you to think I was a nobody. Or Rocky Balboa will say, all I want to do is go the distance so that I know I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. I don't think that our search for identity is a purely American theme. I think that's actually part of the core uh, questions of Western civilization. But all of us are asking, who am I? Who am I really? Am I a pastor, a father, a husband, a Caucasian male, a son in the Cheney family? Like where in that matrix is found your core identity? Who are you really? No, really, who are you? And do your kids know who they really are? Well, in today's passage, Paul is going to deal with this matter, and he does so by urging the Colossians to understand their true identity in Jesus Christ. 
And he goes on to say, he kind of gives us a little secret to identity. It's a biblical secret. It's a Pauline secret. It's, here's the secret. That when you know who you truly are, it is only then that you are truly free. First, or, not First Corinthians, Colossians 3, 1 through 11. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, Rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, Isn't that a great finish to the passage? But Christ is all and is in all. Our Father in heaven, we come hungry for your word and we ask that by your spirit, you would show us who we truly are. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. And God's people said, amen. Sursum corda is the Latin for up with your hearts or lift up your hearts. And if you've been at All Saints for any length of time, you know that we recite the Sursum corda every, every week as part of the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. I, I say to you, you know, the Lord be with you, and you reply, and with your spirit, lift up your hearts. And how do you reply? We lift them up to the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying here, isn't it? Uh, You might even want to write that in the margin of your Bible right next to verse 1 here in Colossians chapter 3. Lift up your hearts. Up with your hearts. Up with your minds. Sursum corda. You know, we as American Christians have been taught that the kind of the posture of prayer that we always default into is eyes closed, heads bowed, fingers folded. But I would suggest to you that there's actually a a whole lot more biblical precedent for um, a posture that, that does this. Lift up. It's, it's up. It's, it's hands up. It's eyes up. We, we lift up. And, you know, that, if you could just even think of that, if you were to start every one of your days, like, up with my heart, up with my mind, up to see Christ, It's going to be a good day (laughs) if you see Christ like that. Each day is supposed to begin in that way. And then throughout the day, until its end, a mind and a heart that is fully concentrated on Christ above me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, 
Christ around me. Um, It's a wonderful mindset. And that's what Paul is speaking about here, to set our minds on things above, to begin our day, and concentrating on these heavenly things as opposed to the earthly things. And by earthly things, he's not saying don't concentrate on the fall colors or the mountains. Uh, The earthly things here are what he's been talking about, what I've been talking about the last two Sundays, about these false ideologies and philosophies. Um, the, The things below, those are the ones he's speaking against. What happens when we set our minds on things above, when we lift our eyes to heaven? Or more specifically, what do we see? Well, we see Jesus by faith. We see the one who possesses all authority, might, honor, glory, power. If, if you do that, if you lift up your, your eyes, you see your brother, your shepherd, your friend, your savior, just like the kids were singing, my savior lives and we see him. And it's going to be a great day because I see Jesus. If I see Jesus, uh, I have every single piece of strength and wisdom and knowledge and stamina to deal with whatever kind of problems face me with this day. We see Jesus. But here's the, it's so paradoxical. We actually see something else. And this is where the whole identity or the whole teaching on Christian identity comes from. We see ourselves. Verse 3, we died with Christ. Verse 1, we were raised with Christ. And then verse 3 again, and now your life is hidden with Christ. So when we search some corda and we see Christ, we see ourselves hidden in him. And that becomes, I would suggest to you, kind of the crux of what it means to have um, a true self-identity. Uh, have you ever played with or, or used those Russian matryoshka dolls before? How, you know, a doll is nestled in a doll is in a, in nestled in a doll. How one doll encompasses all the others. That's kind of what Paul's saying when he says that our lives are hidden in Christ. You know, Christ encompasses us. Uh, It's his way of metaphorically talking about our union with Christ, that when we, by faith, uh, uh, believe in him, we're united to him, we're, we're, we're encompassed by him, so that when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. Uh, And in verse 4, which is so magnificent, he becomes your life. Paul says, Christ is your life. And therefore, he's your identity. Let me give you a definition of false identity that Jason talks about in his book. Uh, A false identity, if you're taking notes, is any identity that is replaced, your true God-designed, God-crafted, and God-redeemed identity as your primary source of meaning, purpose, security, approval, or comfort in life. It is any identity that is re- replaced your God-given identity in Christ as the primary source of meaning, purpose, security, approval, or comfort in life. So let me use myself as an example. You know, I am I'm a pastor. And somewhere in my identity matrix, that's a pretty prominent part of me because I'm spending, you know, all my time working uh, as a pastor. But, but when... Being a pastor becomes a source of my meaning, purpose, security, approval, or comfort in life. Then that 
then that thing that I am has now become a false identity to me. And I, one of the ways I can find my false identities is, is when the church goes bad, if I start to crumble underneath that, it's because, because something's you know, misconnected inside of me um, in, the, in the way that I'm relating to it. And we could say the same about you and your vocation or your being a mother. I mean, when does being a faithful, good mother cross into a false identity of being, you know, something else? And a lot of these things can be difficult to completely uh, understand. So let me give you what your, your true identity is then in Christ. Uh, when you are hidden in Jesus Christ... God, your heavenly father, says, you are precious to me and you are mine. Your value is so high to me that I purchased you with the blood of my own son and I placed my spirit in you as a gift guaranteeing your redemption. He says, your name is written on the palm of my hand and no one can take you from me. Your identity is one hidden in Jesus Christ." Uh, means that you are personally and deeply known by God. He knows you. And he says, I love you. I loved you before the creation of the world. And I chose you even before the foundation of the world was laid. I chose you. I chose to love you. And my love for you is not motivated by, by you. <laughs> it's, I love you just because I love you. It's motivated by me. And therefore, my love doesn't fluctuate based on your consistency or inconsistency. And nothing can separate you from my love. You have a banner over your head, and that banner reads, Loved by God, beloved of God, and I will love you forever. And your identity when you are hidden in Christ, uh, it means that you are truly beautiful in God's sight. God, your heavenly Father, says that before the creation of the world, I chose you to be holy and blameless in my sight, which means I chose you to be spotless and beautiful, radiant, ravishing, and pure. Zephaniah 3.17 says that I delight over you with singing. I sing over you. And I give you my spirit so that I might dwell with you and you with me. When you understand this, the, this becomes your primary source of meaning, purpose, approval, and comfort in life. It's, it's what I just described. And as you might imagine, it does create a unique self-identity. And it does give you a unique mindset through which you filter all of life. It's also profoundly counterintuitive because what we're, what we're really saying is that for you to discover yourself, you have to look outside of yourself to somebody else. When culture tells you for you to discover yourself, you have to look inside of yourself to discover yourself. No, you have to look at somebody else. Why don't we live out of this identity then? Why do Christians who have been Christians for 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years, why do they fail to live out of this unique self-identity? And what Jason talks about in this book, and it's something that I've seen so frequently in pastoring, 
is one of the major reasons why we don't live out of that identity that I just described is because we're so damaged. We are so profoundly damaged. We have such gaping wounds. And he goes on to describe these wounds in terms of father wounds, mother wounds, sibling wounds, spousal wounds, um, sexual wounds, religious wounds. And these wounds... We carry around these wounds, and if they don't get any kind of healing, if you don't apply like deep medicine to them, then what you will find is you'll be acting and living out of these wounds and chasing after particular idols and taking on particular identities that are, that are largely you know, shaped by, by all of that past, that past sin. I know some of you have already thought, a lot about this before, you've kind of gone through and, and, dis, and really, you tried to become aware of wounds from your past and how that may have, may be affecting you in the present. But you have to understand, other people here really have never gone there. They've never really done that. And so if I could, I'm, I'm not trying to do psychotherapy from the pulpit this morning. I'm, I'm really trying to, to deal with what's hidden, uh, what's deep inside of a lot of us. If I could, let me talk to you, uh, describe for you a, a few of those wounds and how you, know, you have to do the hard work of connecting the dots of where these wounds exist in you and then what it means how you are living out of these. But let me just describe for you, first of all, the most common father wounds. Uh, for some children, they were never delighted in and cherished by their father as the particular person they are. And so they grew up feeling mostly fatherly rejection and fatherly displeasure. For some, their earthly father's love was or still is based on their performance. And if you had a hard dad, a man who you could never meet his standard, then of course you live with just the constant sense of disappointment, fatherly disappointment. Some um, have wounds of not being valued. For some, their father didn't treasure them for who they were, nor did he guide you to know God's love. But instead, he centered his life around idols of career and money and success. And so you, um, you never knew what real, deep, tangible love like Christ-like love meant. Which leads to something that's closely related, the wound of abandonment, which is so common today because of divorce. For many, they just don't have a dad. He wasn't there. And the absence of a father is probably, that is the, the greatest cancer of our society today, isn't it? And then some of you have wounds of abuse, wounds of anger, Wounds of sexual abuse. Uh, some fathers' anger towards their kids and their family made everybody walk on eggshells. And you've been verbally or physically wounded by your father's anger. Um, and of course, these can go on and on. Uh, father wounds. What I have found is that father wounds, more than anything else, lead people into false identities. Um, well, then he goes on and he talks about mother wounds. For some children, they never, were never able, able to measure up to their mother's standards. And, those, and so they feel like a disappointment or even failure in, in their mother's eyes. 
For some, their mother wanted them to be someone else other than the person that God designed you to be. The wound of not being valued is different. Some of us were not cherished in and delighted in by our mothers because they wanted you to be a different kid, not the particular person that God made you. There's the wound of maternal idolatry. You know, some moms base their identity on their kids. Just like fathers tend to put, base their identity on their vocations, moms tend to base their identity in their kids. And as a result, sometimes they, they do develop kind of a codependent relationship with their children or their children's performance. And they find their security in their children and not in God. Uh, sometimes you have mothers who look to their children to be their saviors when they're in a really sad and, and unhappy marriage. Uh, another common mother wound, uh, the wound of fear and anxiety. For some, your mother's fear and your anxiety nurtured a deep insecurity and anxiety inside of you rather than a robust safety and God's loving care. And then finally, for some, their mom was ashamed about her physical appearance or about her brains or about something about herself. And she left you feeling pretty ashamed about your own body and your appearance and your brains. And we could talk about sibling wounds and we could, the wounds of favoritism. We could talk about friendship wounds, the wounds of betrayal. We could talk a whole lot about spousal wounds. But what I, don't, what I discover is I don't, most people don't realize how much they are living out of that. And you, know, you see here about where Paul says, you know, you know, there was this old self, this old you, this old person that died with Christ. And that you have to put on the new self, the resurrected you, the risen you. Um, what a lot of you in this room don't realize is how much of your old self <laughs> is tied up into all of those, that old damage that you're still carrying around inside of you. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying the only reason we sin is because of wounds, but normally uh, wounds serve as a soil from which our idols grow. And then all of our particular sins that Paul lists here in verses 5 and 11, through 11, where these grow. And so it's really hard. I mean, if you don't understand why you're sinning in this way, it's, it's quite difficult to figure out how to stop sinning this way. So a couple of questions for you, if you're, um, especially if you're relating to what I'm talking about thus far. Are you sufficiently aware of the damage of, that sin has done to you? Because again, it's very difficult to treat wounds that you don't even know where they are. It's hard to put the the chemo on a cancer, or I mean, I should say the radiation on a cancer. If you can't if you can't find where the cancer is, it's hard to find. It's it's hard to heal a flesh wound if you don't know where that flesh wound exists. Uh, Are you sufficiently aware of the damage? And then secondly. What is your true identity? What is the identity that you're living out? You know, forgive me for being totally redundant, but I'm going to do something I never do in sermons, which is I'm going to say the exact same thing twice. <laughs> and the second time through, I'm wondering if this, if you'll get it. Because in Christ, you belong to God and your heavenly father says, you are precious to me and you are mine 
And your value is so high to me that I purchased you with the blood of my son. And I gave you my spirit. Which is like Frodo in his mithril coat. How valuable that was. My spirit is the most valuable thing that I could possibly give to you as a gift. And it is yours. And in Christ, you are my beloved. I chose you before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world was laid, to be holy and blameless in my sight so that you would be beautiful and ravishing. And I love you, not because of anything you've ever done, good or bad, or any choices you've made. So that means my love will never fluctuate based on your consistency and inconsistency. I will love you forever. And nothing will separate you from my love. And if you could see the banner over your head right now, it would be the banner over me is love. And I, I delight over you in singing Zephaniah three seventeen, And I give you my spirit so that I might dwell in you and you would dwell in me. Let me speak to you parents for just um, a minute. I had a friend, a pastor friend, visit last night, well, two nights ago, a guy I graduated seminary with. He was in town because his dad lives in Mountain Home, and they just got the word. He has bile duct cancer, the three to six months of, uh, of life. And he's just crushed, of course, by that, by that um, news. And he's sitting in my living room. And we're starting to tell stories and he, tells, he said, here's something we've started to do in my family. It's actually something I do as a father with my kids. When my kids turn 21, I take them on an East Coast trip. And we, we take a week where it's just the two of us. And we, um, we do just fun together. So with, he said, with my son, what we ended up doing, we flew into... Uh, what do you, we flew into Baltimore, and we went to Camden Yards for an Orioles game. Then we drove up to Philadelphia, and we saw a U2 concert together. Uh, then we went to Washington, D.C., and we toured Arlington. We, uh, we went to New York City. We, looked, we went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art there. He said, what I, what's so cool about doing this with my kid is you discover new things about them. You spend a week with them like that— he was, I said, I was amazed. My, we were in a coffee shop one day, and my son started up a conversation with a Russian exchange student, and they start talking about Russian politics. I didn't even know my son knew where Russia was, he said. And they're talking about you know, Russian domestic policy. Then we're walking around the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and he starts to tell me how the Chinese made their paints that they painted on these glorious murals. He said, I, I just discovered things about my son I never would have known before. You know, that's sweet. Have you done that with your kids recently? And you find that, and we know this as parents, all of them, they're so unique. And you just wonder how in the world could they come from the same womb? How can they have the same family of origin and all? And they're so unique. And they're unique because God made them. I mean, Psalm 139 I knit you together in, my, in your mother's womb into the unique person that I wanted you to be. And so one of the very important parts of being a parent is we try to help our kids discover what is their unique God-given calling in life. What are they supposed to do? Where are they supposed to go? We, sh- we shepherd them in that process. But how often do you tell them 
here's your true identity. We should teach our kids the practical parts of Christianity, how to pray, how to worship. We should teach our kids theology. But like how many parents really teach their kids, this is who you are. And maybe the reason we don't teach them this is because we don't know, right? We don't know who we really are. I know that today's sermon may not be everybody's cup of tea, (laughs) but for those of you who I am talking to, um, let me speak one last word to you. You have wounds that need healing, and they can be healed by God's love. You have boundaries and relationships that are totally broken and misplaced and ambiguous, and those Boundaries can be relearned and reestablished and healthy because of, of God's love. You have false identities that you've covered yourself in that need to be exchanged for your true one. Um, there are lies that be- you believe about God and there are lies that you believe about yourself. And those can be overcome with the truth. And you have places today where you're so discouraged and you're so depressed and you've given up all hope, absolutely every last shred of hope for your life. But once you discover your true identity, once you discover your true identity, who you really are, then you will be free. Amen.